Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to part six of my grandfather's journey through World War II. I mentioned in the last episode that Bob's parents were not even aware of him being overseas, let alone shot down, missing an action, and then becoming a prisoner of war in a German POW camp. In fact, six days after Bob was shot down, his father, Bob Sr., mailed him a Liberty Overseas edition of the Boston Herald, courtesy of Jordan Marsh. And this was a 12-page V-Mail newspaper dated July 31, 1944. And V-Mail was letters, magazines, and newspapers which were reduced dramatically in size to take up less room on the ships carrying the mail over to the soldiers during World War II. Basically, it's a shrunk-down copy of the July 31st edition of the Boston Herald. And on the back, they leave half a page blank so you can write a personal message and here is what my great-grandfather wrote under the caption, Say hello in this space. Dear Bob, I find your subscription with the Herald has expired, so I am renewing it for six months. After that, you'll be home. Churchill says the war is nearly over, so do the Turks. Me too. I hear you wrote Yvonne. Saw her mother. What, if anything, are you flying? Happy landing. Love, Dad. As spelled out before the start of World War II, provisions for POWs included a ban on executing those who surrender, adequate food, shelter, and medical care in a place out of harm's way, freedom from torture, and the requirement to share intelligence beyond the prisoner's own identity, restrictions on the amount and nature of work prisoners could perform. Bob is a prisoner of war at Stalag Luft 1, which is located on a strip of barren land jutting out into the Baltic Sea, about 105 miles northwest of Berlin. So if you're looking at a map of Germany, we're in the top right corner. You'll see a little island off the northeast side, and it's right to the left of that. This camp was two miles south of the main gates of a massive Lutheran church marked the northern outskirts of the village of Barth. So there was a large pine forest bordering the camp. And when the prisoners would get dropped off at of the camp, they would have to walk through these forests and then pass through this massive Lutheran church gate archway on their way into the camp. This camp had been open since 1942 and began receiving American flyers in 1943. It was a long few years for the first many of residents of Stalag Luft 1 who called themselves Kriegis, and that was short for Kriegerfahnen which is German for prisoner of war. Each of the barracks contained triple-decker bunk beds with mattresses that were about one or two inches thick filled with wood chips. Most of these buildings and the compounds were not weatherproofed at all. There was no insulation and they were very poorly ventilated. And this made for very difficult conditions during the cold winters and hot summer periods of time. In part six, we're going to get into the food situation camp life and the politics of Stalag Luft 1 to hopefully paint a picture of daily life as a POW in Germany during World War II. And there's a running theme that seems to be interwoven with everything in this camp, and that is, as the war went, so did the supplies. There was no rhyme or reason on when the prisoners were given anything, and we covered the two most regular events in the camp last episode, which was roll call and hot water. Roll call happened every day, twice a day, and the hot water was almost every day. Pretty much everything else came and went without any regularity. You could count on not being able to count on anything. 
So let's look at the food situation. We'll start with the infamous Red Cross POW food packages. And in a perfect world, each man would receive one box per week. And this happened maybe two or three times in consecutive weeks during the final year of the war. The American Red Cross produced 27 million parcels even before America entered the war in late 1941, and they were already supplying through Geneva parcels to British, Belgian, French, Polish, Yugoslavian, Dutch, Greek, Norwegian, and, and Soviet prisoners of war. The Philadelphia Center alone was producing 100,000 parcels a month in 1942. And we're going to take a look at a list of the contents of a typical Red Cross parcel received by an American airman held prisoner in Stalag Luft 1. There'd be a one pound can of powdered milk and that would yield probably little more than a half gallon of milk. These were the cans that were flattened out and then reshaped to make other items. There was one package of 10 assorted cookies. There was one pound can of margarine that was pretty much just lard. And that was the only item that they had an abundance of in this camp. It was an eight ounce package of sugar cubes, eight ounce package of Kraft cheese, six ounce package of K ration biscuits, so those were just crackers, four ounce can of coffee, and two D-ration chocolate bars. And these aren't normal chocolate bars, right? A normal chocolate bar would melt in the summer heat, right? It could never be adapted to be carried in a soldier's pocket. Also, they taste too good. So they would be way too tempting to be able to resist not eating a nice delicious chocolate bar and actually save them for an emergency ration. So the government requirements for their chocolate bar was a bar weighing about four ounces, able to withstand high temperatures, high in food energy value, so calories, and tasting just a little bit better than a boiled potato. The whole point of these bars was to keep them for an emergency situation where you were on the verge of starvation, not because you wanted to eat it. Also in the contents was a six ounce can of jam or peanut butter, 12 ounce can of salmon or tuna, a one pound can of spam or corned beef. And Bob mentioned that the engineers in room nine would melt down the corned beef cans and you could get about 10 or 12 drops of solder out of that can. So they would actually melt down the solder used to hold the can together and then they could reuse that solder later to make jewelry and other items. I think Bob still had a cigarette case that, that was made out of those flattened cans and solder. They got one pound of a liver pate, and that sounds very elegant, but that was just fine or coarsely ground pork liver and lard. They had a one pound package of raisins or prunes or some sort of dried fruit. And some prisoners would save that fruit until they had about a gallon or so. And some of the prisoners had built a still from the old Red Cross powdered milk cans. The dried fruit mixture was placed in the cooker and distilled to produce alcoholic beverages. There was seven vitamin C tablets, two bars of soap, a 12 ounce C ration of vegetable soup concentrate, five packages of cigarettes. Now cigarettes in this parcel became the preferred medium of exchange within the camp. With each individual cigarette valued at around 27 cents was the exchange rate in Stalag Luft 1. And cigarettes were also used to bribe German guards to provide the prisoners with outside items that would have otherwise been unable to them. So that's what they... The main source of trading was cigarettes to the German guards. And the men in room nine individually got to keep two packs of the five packs of cigarettes. And they got to keep half of that delicious, gross chocolate bar. And everything else went into the room. And it was out of those pooled resources that Cookie would feed the whole room. 
And that's also what they would use to trade with the German guards while they were out on roll call. And the other rooms that Bob labeled unorganized would not pool their resources. And in Bob's opinion, they did not eat as well, right? Because a can of spam for one man can only last so long. But if everyone throws their cans into the room and then you make a big larger meal, it would yield more servings. But a lot of rooms did not have a person that could cook. And remember, this is the 1940s. Most men couldn't even make friggin' toast, right? And all the other rooms didn't have the oven that these guys had in room nine either. So all the rooms had a little potbelly stove that you could use maybe as a cooktop, but you still had to have some pots or pans that you would have had to made or some, some way to heat up food. And that's why the other rooms would pay the guys in room nine in cold bricks to use their oven. And the men were given cold bricks, which is just cold dust pressed into the shape of a brick, similar in size to a, a regular brick that you would think of. And they were supposed to get two bricks per man per day. But like everything else, you got what you got when you got it. So because of the inconsistency in the Red Cross packages, the prisoners would need supplemental food to fill in the gaps. And they did this with the German Erzat bread made fresh daily right there in Barth. Now, don't make the same mistake I made when I was looking at old pictures and saw a wagon full of bread loaves. And just for one second, I was like, man, that looks good. Erzat brot in German means substitute bread. So your bread loaf was made out of potato starch and frequently stretched with extenders such as sawdust, like a lot of sawdust, and glass. Yes, I said glass. The Erzat bread was furnished to German soldiers and POWs as Kamisbrot, a dark German bread baked from rye or whatever flowers were available. Again, during wartime, resources are scarce and everyone is sacrificing and stretching everything just to get by. So just picture a black loaf of bread, the same size as a normal loaf of bread, except it weighed close to two pounds. And since the Germans themselves ate it, the POWs did as well. Bob and the other POWs would always comment on how their engineers got 40 plus slices out of that loaf. And there was a prisoner detail to pull that wagon into town to get the bread and then pull it back for the prisoners and there was also a similar detail like that to go in and get potatoes and rutabagas from town. And a rutabaga was a Swedish turnip of sorts that the Germans would feed to their least favorite animals. When you hear Bob talk about rutabagas, the disdain in his voice is palpable. He fucking hated those things. And I think he relived the horrible taste every time he mentioned them. So you can see, as we go through all these shit ingredients and disgusting food that was the only thing available, by having someone that could make chicken salad out of chicken shit really improved your experience. And this is why Cookie did not have any other room duties other than making what they got for food edible. And lastly, on the food served at the camp was occasionally the Germans would wheel in their field kitchen, and that's that little mobile kitchen we talked about pulled by a horse or a truck had those two big wooden wagon wheels, a giant pot in the middle that was heated by fire. And occasionally the Germans would serve up some mystery meat that was killed in town, either by bombs or a crashing plane or some other war carnage. It's a cow, it's a lamb, it's a horse. Hey, who gives a shit? Everyone was way too hungry to care. So occasionally the prisoners were treated to a potluck dinner at the Roadkill Cafe. 
It is easy to see how the men of Stalag Left 1 lost so much weight. And also included in their all-inclusive resort was a bi-monthly shower, which I shouldn't even call them showers, maybe a bi-monthly cold plunge, because there was no running hot water at the camp. They just had that nice cold Baltic tap water, which may be a nice treat in the sweltering summer heat, but otherwise downright miserable. And next time you take a shower before you get out, start turning the temperature down colder and colder and see how long you make it. And after that, maybe a bi-monthly torture shower may seem excessive. Few other odds and ends about the camp. These rooms had an attic area that the men could store extra wood in. And Bob said those beds they were laying on came with seven or eight wooden slats to kind of serve as a, like a half-assed box spring for that plush burlap sack filled with wood chips that they called a mattress. And as time went on, these guys were down to three slats on those beds because the others were removed for either projects or to make some heat. And also outside in the camp, the Allies had a big map and where they would update the front lines. And it was funny because the Germans would look at this map and laugh. They didn't believe what they were looking at was real. They, they were constantly being told that they were winning the war. So when they would see the American lines moving further and further into Europe, they didn't think they didn't believe it. I mean, they had no idea that the Allies had stormed the beaches in Normandy and then they were occupying parts of France. You know, government propaganda. And the Germans friggin' wrote the book on it. Again, this is the 1940s. The Germans didn't have supercomputers in their pocket or a way to communicate with, with anyone anywhere in the world at any time. So you really can't blame them for being misinformed. Nick, how did the prisoners know how the war was going if the Germans didn't even know? It's a great question. Some of the British POWs had a radio, and they could listen to the BBC, and they would update the fronts as they changed. Uh, Nick, follow-up question. How did the British POWs get a radio? Man, another great question. The Brits had been at this camp the longest, and over time they had acquired all the parts to make a radio receiver. And they MacGyvered this radio together, and when not in use, they would disassemble it, and all the parts were spread out amongst the prisoners to better hide it. Then they would put it together, listen to it, and then they would take it apart. Because you put it together, it looks like a radio. You take it apart, hey, that's just an innocent piece of wire. I have included a video on how to make a foxhole radio in the description. So anyone who might be behind on their immunizations can learn more. It might come in handy someday. So the British got the updates from the BBC, but they were in another compound. So how did word spread? The compounds were right next to each other. So a prisoner in one camp walking along the perimeter was only about 20 feet away from another prisoner doing the same thing in an abutting compound. The guards would not permit you to stop and chit-chat, but they really wouldn't care if you were walking and talking. Word spread and the maps were updated thanks to the BBC and the British POWs. Another camp tidbit that I found very interesting is the barracks were also raised up off the ground three or four feet. And this was so the Germans could search underneath the rooms with their dogs. You know, don't want anyone trying to uh, tunnel out of the camp. And the topic of escaping was brought up and Bob had a lot to say on the topic. I believe his quote when asked was, well, well that's tricky. And here's what he meant. So your, your duty as an American POW was to try to escape. The Americans in the camp actually had an escape committee, and they were tasked with satisfying that requirement. And the men did not take this seriously. And I'm not sure if those commanders on that committee took it seriously or they were just following orders. So listening to that, naively, I was like, oh, I'd so try to escape. 
And then Bob brought up a great point. If you're an American prisoner of war and you escape out of the camp, now what? So think about it. You're in fucking northern Germany during a world war. The Germans are so scared of their own government, anything they can do to show their loyalty, they will do. So no one is going to help an American because one, you just bombed their country back to the Stone Age. And two, if the Gestapo finds out a civilian helped the enemy, well, guess who's going to be hanging from a light pole? Oh, Nick, I wouldn't ask for help. I'd just blend in and make my way to the American lines. Have you ever heard the joke, what do you call someone who speaks two languages? Bilingual, three languages, trilingual, and one language, American? How are you going to navigate the European countryside if you cannot speak with anyone? At least the British prisoners could speak a few languages. You, you would be like my father when he was in Rome at McDonald's ordering Dewey Ocho's. You wouldn't stand a chance. And Dewey is number two in Italian and Ocho is number eight in Spanish, for those keeping score at home. But despite the reality of the situation, the escape committee commissioned the guys in room nine to tunnel out of the camp. You know, room nine had a great engineering and entrepreneurial reputation at the camp. And along with that, they were kind of close to the fence line. They started by cutting a trap door in the floor under the stove to get underneath the barracks, and then they would start digging, bringing all that displaced dirt back up into their room where it would get divided up and redistributed back to the campgrounds the following day. And Bob thought this was so dumb because he knew it was just a, you know, they had to just go through the motions. So prisoners, you know, shaking the dirt out of their pant cuff as they walk around, guys pretending to like bend down at the pond and just dump the dirt out of their pockets. But they gave it their all, and the guys would dig a few hours each night for about five or six nights. And they had gone down about six feet, and they were about to start to make the turn to go horizontal right out of the camp. But the committee called it off once the Germans started filling in the hole. And the Germans, they never said anything about it to anybody. The guys would just wake up in the morning, and their hole that they dug would be filled up. They'd dig it all again. They played that game for a few times, and then the committee said the hell with it. This was getting near the end of the war, so I don't think the guards gave a shit at this point. And I think everyone knew it was just for show anyway. And lastly, I did want to talk about the guards. Like everything, the guard situation was always changing, depending on how the war was going. During Bob's time at the camp, there were three different types of troops assigned to guard duty. You had the Wehrmacht, which was the German regular army troops. You had the Gestapo, which was the official secret police of the Nazis. And fun fact, the Gestapo was created by Hermann Göring in 1933 by combining the various political police agencies of Prussia into one organization. And remember, Bob was shot down bombing the Hermann Göring tank factory. And lastly, they had prison guards that came from the Volkstrom or the German Home Guard. So during the war, Hitler ordered that all able-bodied men between the ages of 16 and 60 be called to defend their country. And for all the rejects that couldn't get in to the regular army, the Gestapo, the SS, the home guard was where they ended up. So pretty much any other male that couldn't make the army ended up in the home guard. And Bob hated these guys. They were the worst by far. The Wehrmacht were the best. You know, they were professional soldiers. They weren't scared or intimidated by the prisoners or the fact that they were severely outnumbered. They were pros. So they just did their job. The home guard, on the other hand, shit, you'd have like a 70-year-old grandfather with a machine gun 
walking around getting spooked if someone made a sudden movement. So they were terrified. They were scared. And that presented a dangerous situation for the prisoners. Bob was very specific about not liking when the home guard was in charge of the camp. And like the German guards changing as the war went on, so did the commanding officers in the camp for the Americans. The Americans were run by their commanding officer of the camp who would be the highest ranking prisoner. So when a higher ranked colonel got shot down, the power structure would change in the camp. And during Bob's day, he had three or four different commanders during his time. The best commander he had was Colonel Spicer. And I'm going to leave you with Colonel Henry Russell Spicer's speech given in North Compound 2 of Stalag Luft 1 on October 31st, 1944, which earned him a death sentence by the Germans. Quote, Lads, as you can see, this is not going to be a fireside chat. Someone has taken the steel bar off the south latrine door. The Germans want this bar back. They have tried to find it. I have tried to find it. We have had no success. The Germans have threatened to cut off our coal ration if this bar isn't found by 12 noon. I don't know if this is a threat or not, but we must return the bar to the Germans. Anyone having information, report to my room after this talk. There will be no disciplinary action taken against anyone. Yesterday, an officer, Major Bronson, was put in the cooler for two weeks. He had two counts against him. The first was failure to obey the order of a German officer. That is beside the point. The second was failure to salute a German officer of lower rank. The Articles of the Geneva Convention say to salute all officers of equal or higher rank. The Germans in this camp have put out an order that we must salute all German officers, whether lower or higher rank. My order to you is to salute all German officers of equal or higher rank. I've noticed that many of you are becoming too buddy-buddy with the Germans. Remember that we are still at war with the Germans. They are still our enemies and are doing everything they can do to win the war. Don't let him fool you around this camp because he is a dirty, lying sneak and can't be trusted. As an example of the type of enemy you have to deal with, the British were forced to retreat in the Arnheim area. They had to leave the wounded in the hospital. The Germans took the hospital and machine gunned all the British in the beds. In Holland, behind the German lines, a woman with a baby in her arms walking along the road, evacuating the battle zone. Some British prisoners were passing her. She gave them the V for victory sign. A German soldier saw her and without hesitation swung his gun around and shot her on the spot. They are a bunch of murderous, no-good liars. And if we have to stay here for 15 years to see all the Germans are killed, then it will be worth it. At this point, there were loud cheers from all the men, and the colonel then turned to the German majors and the non-commissioned officers standing to his side. For your information, these are my own personal opinions, and I'm not attempting to incite a riot or a rebellion. These are my opinions, and not necessarily the opinions of my men. Again, there were loud cheers from the crowd. Then the colonel faced the men and said, That is all, men, and remember what I've told you. Colonel with the most seniority went to the head of the list. In that, in that compound, we had Grabrowski was a fighter ace, and he was the head man for quite a while. The best head man we had was a colonel by the name of Spicing at roll call. Everyone was out in the open. In front of the Germans, he gave the Americans hell. He gave, the, gave us, the prisoners, hell for even thinking about trading what they've done to the people in Holland and said, what well, he gave us hell for even wow. looking at the church. And immediately afterwards, they catted him. Solitary, he had a trial. 